Well, I want to invite everyone to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we'll continue in our passage in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. And we've been looking at this important text in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is outlining a life of blessing. And we've said that the idea of blessing, the Greek term makarios, which we translate as blessed, where he says blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. The idea is really flourishing, happy, happy are the poor in spirit, flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Jesus is outlining how to flourish in life and how being a part of his kingdom leads to that. And right in this sermon where Jesus is outlining how to flourish, he begins with certain values of flourishing. And then he's going to go on and outline the practices of how we relate with each other and interact that enable this flourishing. But right between that, we have our text that we've been looking at, where Jesus is wanting to communicate how people of his kingdom help others and the world to flourish. And so we've asked the question as a church, we're asking the question, how do I, how am I a blessing in the world? How do I participate and join with God in his mission to bring flourishing? And each week, we've had a shorter message and an interview, and we're going to do that this morning as well. But what, what I'm hoping to do, trying to do, is to give you one idea, one image in the sermon. And so we began our image, our idea was blessing as an overflow. That if we want to bless others it requires that we experience God's abundant blessing. And we're reminded there that, that we're not just robots in God's machine, that he wants to minister to you and me, not just through us. We're not just doing good things for God, but we're experiencing good things from God. And then last week, we talked about the tension that if we're going to be salt and light, it requires entering into the tensions between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. That there is a difference. And that the, the difference is often hostile. And so this Sunday, we're going to take another step into that, considering how we're a blessing in an often hostile world. And we're going in a little bit different direction than I originally had thought and planned. Uh, initially, we had talked about um, this, this week, talking about the ordinary ways we bless people in life. But this week, through just prayer and wrestling with the text, I feel like God was leading me and thinking through how do we do this as a people in a slightly different direction. We'll get to the ordinary moments of blessing. But here's the image that I'm wanting for us today that's rooted in our text. And here it is, how to be a sacred presence, how to be a sacred blessing in a secular world. And so let's read our text this morning. Matthew 5, verse 13, Jesus is again, he's communicated the values of the kingdom, how to flourish 
now he has something for his people. He says, you, that's the plural form of you. This would, if Jesus was in Kentucky, he'd say, y'all, y'all are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You, y'all, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In our text, Jesus uses these two metaphors, salt and light, to illustrate the nature of the way we bless the world. Now, when you think of salt, you think, what I think is French fries. I mean, that's like the first. I, we think of salt as a seasoning. Salt makes something like potatoes that would otherwise be just bland, amazing. Salt is a seasoning. But for Jesus's original audience, when they heard salt, they would have thought of more. And we talked last week about how salt in their context was a preserving agent, that it preserved food, but it goes even deeper than that. For us in our culture, salt is not a hot commodity. I mean, you get it for free. You don't have to pay for salt when you go to Wendy's. You know, you don't order your food and say, give me, a, give me some salt. They're like, that'll be $5. No, they, they just hand it out for free. In our culture, salt is not this amazing commodity. But back then, it was different. Salt was a little bit more of a precious commodity, and it was often used in order to form a covenant. In fact, it's used even today. Um, uh, the, our term salary comes from the ancient meaning salt money, referring to a soldier's allowance being paid in salt. It was that precious of a commodity that was equated with, uh, with, with earnings. We even say someone's worth his salt kind of emerges from this perspective of salt. And in the Arab cultures today, if two men are partaking in salt together, they are sworn to protect one another. Because salt, again, speaks to the preserving agent. And so in different cultures, it's viewed in a very important way. Even in the Bible, there are salt covenants. Salt covenants. Uh, in 2 Chronicles 13, it mentions the salt covenant. It says... Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Salt was taken by two parties in order to form a contract that illustrated that, that this was going to preserve, this was going to last. And so for Jesus' audience, they would have thought of the covenant. And that's reinforced when Jesus uses the, the image of, of light. That you are the light of the world. Light was symbolic in the Old Testament to represent God's covenant people. It's why the prophet in Isaiah 42, he says this. The Lord says to the prophet, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Jesus has given these two images of salt and light to remind people that they're part of the covenant people of God. 
the sacred people of God, the holy, set-apart people of God, sent into the world to be a blessing. And so what does it look like for us to be a sacred blessing in our world today? And it requires that we, we continue to understand this tension between the sacred and the secular. I was reminded of this tension that we experience in our culture and our day and age today, this past week. Uh, often when I'm preparing for a sermon, I like to get out of the office, get out of the church and work at a coffee shop. And there was a coffee shop I had been wanting to work at that just recently opened in Victorian Village. Stoffs uh, opened up a new coffee shop on Neal Avenue. I think it's Neal and Sixth. And they opened up a new coffee shop in an old, beautiful, sacred church. And I remember walking in this past week. I went twice. I loved it so much. I went in and I had a few observations. First, walking in, I was kind of just taken aback, just stopped before I opened the doors, looking at the beauty of this old church building, this, this building that communicates the sacredness of life. And I walked in and Immediately, I was reminded, this sacred church building is now an amazing coffee shop. Updated, it looked nice, nice flooring, nice lighting. Even in the bathroom, you go in the bathroom, and it, it had the smell of new construction. Anyone know that smell? I love that smell. New construction. I think my family, uh, once or twice growing up, they bought newer homes, and it just reminded me of something that smelled and felt good. It felt it had this combination of sacred and old and modern and updated. But then I noticed that it was packed. It was packed with people because I couldn't find a seat. And I don't think it's just because Stoffs has the best coffee. Sorry, Stoffs, your coffee's fine. I don't mean to want to make a whole point there. But they have other coffee shops around that also have people in them. Why would people go to this one where there's not a, you have to pay to park? Why? Because people wanted this modern expression of a coffee shop in a sacred space. There are some lessons here that I think we would be wise to consider as we think about being a sacred people called to minister in a secular world. And I want to draw out three lessons for us today. Three lessons considering how a modern coffee shop can thrive in a sacred space. First, first lesson, people long for the sacred. People long for the sacred. The image of the church in a, co of a coffee shop in a church is representative of our post-Christian world that we live in, especially in urban environments, especially in urban communities outside of the American South. We live in a post-Christian world. Now, what does it mean to be post-Christian? It's a term we often hear thrown around a lot. And there's a cultural critic and pastor from Melbourne, Australia, named Mark Sayers, and he writes a lot about this. And his perspective is very fascinating and very interesting. He says that a post-Christian world and a post-Christian culture is not merely a culture that's moved on past Christian values and a Christian worldview. 
Rather, it is a culture that is built on Christian cultural convictions, but they don't include Christ. It is a world where people long for justice. People long for equality. People long for peace and prosperity. And yet we think we can achieve it by building a society without the king of that kingdom. It is a world that longs for the kingdom that Christ outlined without Christ as king. This is the world that we live in. The culture that is shaping you and me and our children. It is the air that we breathe. It is a kingdom without a king. It's as if our society today is haunted. It is haunted by the presence of God. It's why Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher, when he said God is not dead, he spoke about the concept of God will continue to haunt Western, the Western modern world. It's, it's as if when you lose a parent, when a parent dies, you will always for the rest of your life be impacted by that parent, whether they were loving and good to you or whether your parent was not. Our culture is haunted by the kingdom that Christ laid out. And that's why today many atheists and agnostics talking to them, they will even admit wanting faith. There's this desire for the sacred, for God, and yet feeling like they just can't get there rationally. And it's also why many, many are so angry with God, even if they claim they don't believe in him. It's like this desire for what Jesus lays out, but feeling in some ways almost abandoned by the king. This is the post-Christian world in which we live in, reminded that people long, long for the sacred. Now, again, second lesson that we're learning here. A second lesson is that we bless people by connecting them to God. We bless people by speaking into and connecting to the deep longing that we all have. That we all have. And this is why it's so important. We spoke a little bit last week about the challenges of living in this tension. We said... So one approach is avoiding, avoiding the tension, avoiding this post-Christian culture, taking ourselves out of it, or criticizing, stepping out and just critiquing the post-Christian culture. And then the other temptation is to assimilate, to be colonized by the kingdom of the world. And Jesus calls us to be salt and light. Now, one problem in how we engage this, this issue of people longing for the divine is we're reminded that as a community of faith, our primary calling is not to just be relevant in the world. There was a whole pro approach to missional church, to being on mission, that wanted to posture the church in a way that just, it, really at the heart of it was trying to make the church cool again. Trying to be cool. Now, 
when I was in college, I, my faith was awakened, and I was a part of a campus ministry, a new campus ministry at Florida Gulf University. Go Eagles. Anybody? My wife's downstairs, so, yeah, that's... And, um, and in it, we had this approach. We wanted to reach people, and so we wanted to create a gathering that did not feel like church. And I was the one who initiated this and did it. And so here was the vision. Here was the idea. We're going to meet in this ballroom, this large ballroom on campus, and I wanted it to feel like a club. And I literally went to Miami and met with club directors to learn what they did. And we did it. I mean, we, we had trusses and those gobo lights. And you walked in, and there was, it was called Ignite, you know, and it was like fire on the walls and lights going everywhere and club music. And it grew. People came. It was cool. It was cool. And that's really behind the church growth movement and a lot of how we're we would try to do church because what we, we wanted it to be cool. We didn't want to be embarrassed. And it was as if we were saying to the world, if we could just make it cool, then they'll come and want Jesus. But that's not what's happened. That's not what's happened. I think there's a, there are many reasons behind it. I mean, first of all, the world now kind of looks at that approach, and it just is kind of silly. And it often is just effective at reaching Christians somewhat. But what we do is we present a way of relating to God that taps into our consumeristic, image-driven culture. And when you relate to God that way, what happens when God is no longer cool? What happens when God calls you to live in a way that's counter to the values of the kingdom of the world? And so as a church, we're reminded that what we're, we're not here to just try to make God cool. We're here to connect people to the one life-giving, gracious, redeeming God who is cool no matter what our culture says. People need God. I was really struck to kind of drill this home one more later. There's a pastor in New York City, I mean New York, extremely post-Christian. His name's John Tyson. And he said, I love how he put it. He said, if you have a church and you have amazing preaching and amazing music and amazing media, you can reach some Christians. Because that's what Christians, you know, we're like, man, I want to hear a good sermon and I want to, the music, is this going to, is there going to be good coffee? But if you want to reach non-Christians in a post-Christian world, they're looking for God. They're looking for the presence of God. That's why they will go to an old church building to get their coffee. Because there's a hunger in their soul and all of our souls for the one who can really bring life. Lesson. Our ministry is to connect people to God. Not a cool Christian experience. And lastly, we must bring the sacred into the secular we must bring the sacred into the secular. In the same way that Stoffs and a smart coffee shop's like, hey, this is a sweet old church building. We'll go in there and bring some good coffee to make some money. We're bringing the sacred, the presence of God into every sphere, every place. 
into our homes, in our neighborhood, into our workplaces, into the coffee shops. We bring the sacred into the secular. And as we close, I'm pretty much out of time. In three minutes, <laughs> I want to outline four practical ways we can do this. Just kind of give them to you. Maybe one will stick. Really, even actually, these are kind of questions for you to consider how to bring the sacred into the secular. First, we can do this by prioritizing a sacred community. Again, Jesus outlines, you are a city set on a hill. We're not all individual lights. We're a community of faith, a community of faith. And this is a blessing in a secular world because in our world, community is so transient. We're in and out of, we move in and out of cities. We move in and out of neighborhoods. We move in and out of relationships. Often, basically, depending, is this place make me happy? That's kind of what we ask. Is this, is this community here, is it going to make me happy? Is it fun? The minute there's some kind of cost, you know, ah, oh, got to move. When you root yourself in a sacred community, and I know, gosh, I'm saying this at the risk of being self-seeking here as a pastor. <laughs> I understand. If it's not Scarlet City, go to another church. Root yourself in a sacred community and invest your life there. And then, no, you are being so countercultural. Just committing to a church is increasingly weird in our day and age. And don't be afraid to talk about it with your neighbors and friends. Yeah, I'm going to a church function. Yeah, you know, I go to church on Sunday. Yeah, you know, we, we don't do this because we prioritize our church. People will look at you and kind of wonder, hey, maybe that church thing is important to them. And when you prioritize your community or you don't prioritize your church, you're saying something about God. Whew. Prioritizing a sacred community. Second, how to bring the sacred into the secular. Be present with people. Be present. Not just existing in the same room. Emotionally present. Turn off your phones. Talk to them. Listen to your neighbor. If you want to revolutionize your neighbor's life, invite them over for a meal and be hospitable and ask them questions. How are you doing? What's going on in your world? Tell me about work. Tell me about your family. I'd love to know your story. They'll, they'll, they'll be weirded out. Like, what? Asking me questions. I... And they might even not want to answer because when someone starts to probe and ask and get deep, you know, we're... But over time, over time, they'll actually think that maybe you care about them. And what we're saying to this person is, you know what? In a world that wants to judge you by what you post on social media, I want to love you because you are an image bearer of God. Third, be willing to sacrificially serve all. Don't caricature people. Jesus says, love your enemies. We're going to get there in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Have this personal security that you can hang out with people who disagree with you. In our world, it can't do that. It's like you're either on, you're either on my team or you're not. Everyone's fundamentalist. A fundamentalist says, if you don't espouse my beliefs, then I'm not going to hang out with you. Don't be a fundamentalist. Sacrificially be present and serve all. And lastly, submit your life to Christ. Submit your life to Christ. He's the guide. 
He's the king. And there might be things we don't understand. There might be things that in our flesh being shaped by our culture, we would disagree with. We would do it different. But you know what? The pressure of being God and needing to craft my own identity and be my own guide is overwhelming. And it is overwhelming our culture. It is why there is so much unraveling. We can bless people by saying, you know, there is a king. And when we think about justice and peace and equality and prosperity and eternity, Pursuing all of that's too much for me to bear alone. I'm looking at Christ. Would you want to consider following him too? Let's pray. Lord, you've called us to be salt and light. And what a reminder that this means we are your covenant people. Chosen by you. Redeemed by you. A sacred people sent into a world is longing for your presence. May we take this calling seriously. And may we see the joy in being able to enter into it with you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So we have been, as Jay said, doing these uh, interviews. Oh, you want me in the middle? Okay. It's fine. We, it's fine. We, we, can, we can switch mics around. Can I sit down? It's keeping me on my toes. All right, so we've been doing these interviews talking about some of the practical pieces of this, this calling to be salt and light. And this is really fun this morning because I got to interview my parents. This is Andy and Patty Hunt. Oh, I'm Jenny Hunt. I don't think I introduced myself. I direct our mercy ministry here at Scarlet City. And it's been really fun to, to do this, uh, these, these interviews. And so, like I said, it's really fun to be able to have you guys hear a little bit about the legacy that I have as being, being these people's daughter. So the first question I would like to ask is just for you to share a little bit about what this vision of living on mission, of being salt and light, has looked like for you. What, what is the vision that God has given you in that? Okay. First thing we got to do is we got to switch because my wife's mad at me. I don't want her to be mad at me. I just have the list of what we're doing. <laughs> Maybe he has eyes over there. And oh, if, my and gosh. If, and if Jay had listed about three more points, he'd have said everything that we want to say. <laughs> Go ahead. Andy and I started walking with God when we went to college and learned how to walk with God there. And in the midst of that, the people that came alongside and invested in us and teaching us that constantly were telling us, pray about how you're going to invest in other people. So from the very start of our walk with God, people became the important investment that we wanted to give our lives to. And over the last uh, four years or so, God has been expanding that a little bit. We've kind of landed on this idea of place Jay talked about it this morning, a sacred presence, being a sacred, we call it, we use faithful presence, but we believe that God is, um, has placed us in Forest Park, 
you know, even you, wherever your, whatever your street is, you know, we've, we feel like God has placed you there. And it's, 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 it's a purposeful placement. And um, he's doing this bigger thing of reconciling all things to himself. Jeremiah 29.5 talks about seeking the welfare of the city where God has put you. And so we are investing in people, but we also desire to seek the welfare, that shalom, allowing people to have peace with God, bringing them into peace with their neighbor, bringing peace and bringing flourishing, like Jay says, into the economics and the schools and the businesses and whatever is in that place. And God has invited us to not only invest in people, but in place as well. Yeah, we love the, the word flourishing. Um, John 14, 1.14 in the message says that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. And it just, you know, think about it. If Jesus is in us as we seek to walk with him, when we move into a neighborhood, Jesus is moving into the neighborhood. And... Um, so we're just we've got a we've we're developing a heart for our place and and trying to figure out what that looks like to be faithfully present in uh, Farce Park. So tell us a little bit about what are some of the practices of that faithful presence. So when we first moved into our neighborhood 18 years ago in Cincinnati, we intentionally decided that we wanted to be. Jesus in that place. And so the first commitment we made was that we were going to show up. Whatever the neighbors were doing, whatever the neighborhood was doing, we were going to be there. If they were out hanging outside, we were going to be there. If there was something going on, we were going to be there. And we became a student of our place. Uh, I, I should have brought my map, but we, we, make a little, we made a little map of our street in uh, Forest Park, and we drew the houses on there, and we started filling in names as we got to know people. And, you know, we'd go out on a walk after dinner, and somebody would be out in their yard, and we'd stop and say, hey, we're the new guys on the block. What's your name? And, and when we got, and then we'd rush home so we could write them down so we wouldn't, 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 wouldn't forget. forget. <laughs> in both these neighborhoods, so just a so we lived in this neighborhood for 18 years, and that's where we saw God move people to Jesus and move people in community with each other in a phenomenally glorifying way. Well, we just moved to Columbus a couple months ago, so we are starting all over, and that's what the Forest Park illustration. So a lot of our stories are still from where we were, had invested for those 18 years, and we're seeing where God's doing, what God's doing next. But in both of these neighborhoods, I'm a walker. And so I always take prayer walks. As I walk my neighborhood, I pray that the Spirit of God would hover there. I pray that I would be alert to where he's moving. I pray for the people and the children and just the whole community in which God placed me. Another practice we found that's important for us is paying attention to kids and dogs. And oh, and I always say, and dogs. Learn those dogs' names. I don't pay attention to the dogs, sorry. But I, pay, paying attention to kids is a big thing. You know, people are excited about their kids, you know? And so if you pay attention to the kids in your neighborhood, if you know their names, if you talk with them, 
if you, you know, ask them how school went that day, it just makes a difference, and people get excited about it. It's, it's a great connection. A lot of people just ignore uh, the, young, the young crowd. We found that um, we had lots of opportunities to serve people. My husband's a woodworker, and so he would get all these students, when they had to do their physics projects and make something, they would be in the garage, and he'd have his saw out, and they would figure out how to do that. Um, there was a group of us that would serve the people that maybe they lost somebody, a parent, or they were sick, or we would bring them meals or cards. So we served people and cared about people and listened to people. Now, you, you, you have to cut us off when yeah, the time gets... Yeah, have to cut you off uh, yeah. in a second. Okay. Oh, no, not yet. Um, serving sometimes can be tricky. And... Um, there's this principle that I call reciprocity. You know, when you just walk, when you, when you just try to serve people, your neighbors, sometimes it just gets weird. They don't, you know, people want to be independent. They don't want to be helped. And so you, we've, you've got to figure out a way to, to assuage that weirdness. And the way, some, the way we found to do it is just to let people serve you. Um, when I broke my back a couple of years ago, we depended on our neighbors. They did everything from moving my bed down to my uh, living room to uh, carrying me in and out of the house when I had to go to the doctor. And br they brought meals every other day for how long? A month? Two months? Three months. Oh, uh, well, three months. <laughs> um, are we going to talk about Bible reading? Oh, yeah. One of the things that I had a group of women that we read the Bible with after four years of relating to them and sharing individual conversations, there came a time where one of them was reading this book and she made this comment, wow, I wish I could read the Bible. And I, God moment, and I happened to say, wow, would, would it help you read the Bible if maybe a group of us got together and read it together? course I had been praying this for years and she said yeah that would help so this group of women started reading the Bible together and we read for 16 years no 14 years together but that group became a group where we grew in appreciating each other we called out each other's gifts we encouraged each other to use our gifting to flourish the place that we lived. So as a team, as a mini community of God seekers and followers, we um, shared our gifting with others. Okay. So she talked about two things. She talked about the Bible reading. And, you know, that's something that doesn't just happen as soon as you move into a place. You've got to have, it's weird. People who have never read the Bible before, that, it's weird to start reading the Bible, right? So you have to build some kind of platform, relational platform, and it takes, it took us, well, it took me four years for the guys. It took me four years for the women. Okay. Me yeah, me longer. Okay. So, so that's one thing. The other thing is appreciation. She talked about appreciation. And, you know, affirmation, calling out the good things in people's lives, calling out their gifts is so powerful that it should be illegal, actually. <laughs> Um, when I was in the hospital after I broke my back, one of the guys from the neighborhood came in. Actually, he, he, he and his wife, well, this is too long of a story. How are we doing? Uh, we're over. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'll have to save that story for, for later. <laughs> Sorry. 
So we got to quit and go into the next next. Oh, no, yeah, here, how about this? So obviously you should talk to them more because they have a lot of really cool stories and they would love, they really would, no, I mean, we, we're laughing, but, but they would love to share them with you. They would love to, to talk about the things that they've experienced and the ways that God has used them in their neighborhood. And, and if you're looking for ideas, they, they've got a lot of them. But one kind of maybe final takeaway for us as we're, again, wanting to grow in this area, an encouragement or a challenge for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you, we've gone about, you know, three-quarters of the way through our list. Pick something. Pick something. Just try something. Experiment. Um, take some initiative with somebody in your place and see where it goes. And it can be very small. It can be being friendly in the grocery store and adding value there because that's where you go every week. It could be waving to a neighbor. It can be very small but it will open your eyes to maybe perhaps God when he says, love your neighbor, that he's literally meeting your neighbor next door. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you moved into our neighborhood, that you took on flesh, that you came to our mess and that you um, changed everything for us. And Lord, we want to follow your example. We want to move into our neighborhoods and even more, Uh, practical and tangible ways. We want to add value. We want to show up. We want to be present with people. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to do that, that you would give us courage, that you would give us insight, that you would give us creativity to take steps right in the very places that you have placed us. In Jesus' name, amen.